We are going to continue our study in the life of Jesus, the series we're doing called I Am Jesus. And I love, love, love studying Jesus. There's nobody like him. And today, we're going to be continuing to look at the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, the most fascinating, most important person in all of history, the fulcrum of history himself. Today, we're going to look at two accounts that center around the issue of Jesus' ability to forgive sins, his ability to forgive sins. We're going to be in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, and we're going to start in verse 40. We're going to be there in a little bit. We'll do a little bit of an introduction, but that's where we're going to be heading. Our first account involves a man suffering from what we today call Hansen's disease, but back then it was called leprosy. And the disease of leprosy was significant to the Jews because in Isaiah, all the way in the Old Testament, this Old Testament prophet, Isaiah makes it clear that leprosy is a picture of sin. Leviticus 13 teaches that leprosy begins beneath the surface of the skin just as sin does and what you see outwardly in people's lives is only the result of what's going on within them we're not sinners because we sin we sin because we're sinners because we're sinners Leviticus 13 goes on to say that leprosy, like sin, spreads throughout the whole body. You could control it for a season, but if you didn't deal with it, if you didn't destroy it, it would eventually destroy you. The Hebrew book of extra-biblical laws, which is all the, the laws that the rabbis and the scribes came up with, is called the Talmud. And in the Talmud, it teaches that leprosy is second only to death in the list of 61 defilements. These are things that can defile you. If you touch a dead body, that's the most serious defilement that can happen to you. Second most serious defilement they felt was leprosy. And he who had leprosy was as good as dead because his disease would separate him from the rest of the community. They were required to live outside of the city and they were literal outcasts. Their only companions generally were other lepers. So they would all be forced to watch the disease ravage each other's bodies to death. And if a leper came into a city, the law required him to cry out, unclean, unclean, so that everyone within a 150-foot radius might back away and clear the area. I've proposed a similar rule for young teenage boys who have yet to learn hygiene, but it hasn't caught on yet. But it's not an easy existence if you can imagine the life of a leper being so isolated and so ostracized. The leprosy shows us how our sin has separated us from God. Like the leper, our sin has forced us out of fellowship and community with God into isolation where we would slowly and painfully live out our destiny of death. As distasteful as that is, that is the picture of our spiritual condition without Jesus. That's where we are without Jesus, without his intervention. It's dramatic, it's heartbreaking, it's agonizing, and it's the truth. That's where we were without Jesus, and that's where we are if we're without Jesus. We're not in a good place trying to get to a great place with Jesus. We are in death. We're under a death sentence without Jesus. The transformation is from death into life. It's that dramatic. And what about the person who says, I don't, I don't need Jesus. I'm doing great. Leprosy answers that tragic statement as well because in the beginning stages, the skin of a leper would become hard and it takes on a glossy appearance and as it progresses, it would cause all the nerve endings in the body to become numb and lose sensitivity and that in turn would lead to the loss of fingers and toes and it's this loss of nerve sensitivity that makes leprosy so tragic because our body sends signals of pain as a way of telling us that a specific part of the body needs attention. We need to do something about this. It's our mind and nerves and muscles working in unison to get a message to us that there's a problem that needs to be addressed. And so the leper may cut his foot and feel nothing, feel absolutely nothing, and that cut will become infected and turn into something far worse if it's not attended to. That's a picture for us of how sin works. If we don't deal with it immediately, we risk losing our sensitivity to sin. The truth is, the longer you stay in a sin, the more comfortable you become with it. And it's not because things are getting better or because we're okay. It's because we're becoming comfortable with it and we're losing our sensitivity and are no longer able to perceive the damage that's being done to us. So the person who says, I feel fine about their spiritual condition without Jesus, 
is tragically numb, just as the leper is. That's the great tragedy. You cannot know that you've lost sensitivity because you've lost sensitivity. It's tragic when a believer says something like, you know, I don't, I don't feel like dating a non-believer is a bad thing. I don't, you know, I don't feel like I'm doing anything wrong when I watch that. And so often the case is, well, well of course you don't because you simply lost your sensitivity, which simply reveals how serious the issue is. One of the things that scares me most about the Christian life is, is the realization that I can maintain a sin, I can persist in a sin all the way to the point where it doesn't bother me anymore. I become that good at it that I lose all sensitivity. It's a form of self-deception, deceiving yourself. And so the leper goes through involuntary self-deception. Their own body is betraying them. And it's a picture of what happens when we don't deal with sin in our lives and we simply become numb to it. But we cover that up by telling ourselves things like, you know, I'm, I'm a mature believer. That's why I can do this. I don't feel a conviction from God. That's why I can do this. Instead of sounding the alarm and saying, the fact that you feel no conviction about doing something that goes against the words of Jesus should scare you, should terrify you. It should be the experience a leper would have when he looks at his foot and realizes that he cut it three weeks ago and he's only just seen the cut now. It should be shocking. That's the great, great danger of sin. You know, leprosy was contagious. At that time, they didn't understand who it would transfer to and who it wouldn't, but they knew there was a risk of it passing from one person to another. And one of the great lies we tell ourselves about sin is, you know, this, this is my sin. It's not, it's not really going to affect anybody else. And the sad thing about that is I'm sure that Adam and Eve thought the same thing in the Garden of Eden when they disobeyed the Lord. Who else is this going to affect? We're the only two people here. Had a pretty big impact. Had a pretty big impact. We can't believe that lie. Maybe the leper in today's study noticed a blemish on his hand one day and then he noticed that it wasn't getting better and then he realized at a certain point that he had leprosy. And I can't imagine the tragedy of the moment when he realizes he'll never touch his wife again. He will never touch his kids again. He's living out his death sentence in slow motion. And that sin, if you don't deal with it, it'll cost you everything. It'll end up costing you everything. In accordance with the popular teachings of the day, leprosy was also considered a direct judgment from God. You can make a note of that on your outlines. Leprosy was considered a direct judgment from God. In fact, the word leprosy means smitten. They felt that those who had leprosy were being judged by God, and so they must be terrible people. So not only are you ostracized medically, not only are you an outcast medically, but people look at you and ascribe your physical condition to the state of your heart. Not only are you a terrible physical being, you must be a terrible spiritual being as well. That's what lepers dealt with. All the way back in Exodus, the second book of the Bible, God makes a mind-blowing offer to the children of Israel. He comes to them and he's, he's laying out their options. He's saying, if you follow me, this is what I'll do for you. If you don't follow me, this is what I'll do for you. And when you read it, you can't figure out why they didn't choose the path of wisdom until you look within yourself and realize we do the same thing all the time. Because what God says is, all this great stuff is going to happen to you if you follow me. All this terrible stuff is going to happen to you if you do your own thing. It's the kind of offer you shouldn't really have to think about. But God tells the children of Israel, if they follow him, he will make them immune to sickness. Seriously, it's unbelievable. He says, none of you will ever get sick if you follow me. He tells their woman, none of you will be barren. None of you will ever miscarry if you follow me. That's the offer. And of course, they didn't follow the Lord faithfully. And so every sickness they witnessed amongst themselves, especially leprosy, was a tangible and damning reminder of the fact that they were unable to faithfully follow the Lord. They were unable to to be righteous. They were unable to be good enough. And that would be right in their face every time they were confronted with sickness. Theologically, this also tells us that every type of sickness and disease and genetic problem we have in our world today 
can be traced back to the fact that this is a fallen, sinful world. Because when sin entered the world, it didn't just enter our spirits. It even entered our DNA. We became genetically fallen. And this is one of the things that, that breaks my heart is, is every time we're confronted with death, we're confronted with sickness or something genetic that's not as it should be in ourselves or someone else, what we're really feeling are the effects and the ramifications of sin. It doesn't matter whose sin, whether it's ours or somebody who came before us or Adam and Eve's. We're feeling the effects of sin. It's a hard, hard thing to come to grips with. It makes me long even more for the day when Jesus establishes his kingdom on the earth. When he does that, he's not just going to make things right politically. He's going to make things right genetically. Everything that has fallen is going to be restored. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be amazing. That's why he says things like, the lame will leap when Jesus sets up his kingdom on earth. Because all of that fallenness goes away when Jesus takes charge. I like to think of it this way. When we experience anything in life that is broken or painful or unjust, we're experiencing the echoes of our fall into sin. And when we experience anything in life that is good and right and wonderful, we're experiencing the echoes of Eden, is what I call it. And I have that, you know, when I take my kids to the beach and I, and I watch them just run on the open sand with complete lack of self-consciousness. There's just this good moment. And I always think to myself, man, that is, that's an echo of what God gave us originally. And that's what we lost. And I can't wait for the day when he gives it all back. It's going to be amazing. The pain of this life should make us long more desperately for the kingdom of God, but so too should the best moments of this life. Keep in mind that during the account we're about to read, this story is not so much about Jesus' ability to deal with physical sickness as it is about Jesus' ability to deal with sin or spiritual leprosy. I think you'll find a lot of hope in the way that Jesus deals with this leper. So let's start. Mark 1, verse 40. It says, Now a leper came to him. You might want to underline leper. A leper came to him, imploring him, kneeling down to him and saying to him, If you are willing, and then underline, you can make me clean. In Matthew's gospel, it says that the man came and worshipped Jesus. And when you and I experience that loss of spiritual sensitivity, for, for me, I know it when I don't even have the desire to want God sometimes. Sometimes you're in the place where you want to want God, if that makes sense. But you know you've just become lost and numb somehow. Maybe you've become ensnared in sin. This man is the example. You need to go to Jesus. You need to fall at his feet, and you need to worship him. You're not going to fix this on your own. And when the leper says to Jesus, if you're willing, you can make me clean, he's testifying that he believes Jesus is God. In all of Israel's history up to this point, only Miriam and Naaman had ever been healed of leprosy. And both were dramatic miracles of God. In other words, only God could heal the genetic disease of leprosy. Only God. So when this leper goes up to Jesus and says, if you want to, you can make me clean, he's saying, I believe you're God. I believe you're God. So write this down. What you ask of God reveals who you believe he is. What you ask of God reveals who you believe he is. The size of your prayers says a lot about you and about who you believe God is. This leper whose sickness was a symbol of sin saw Jesus and had the audacity to break the rules and push through the crowd as people were probably freaking out and say, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He didn't doubt Jesus' ability to make him clean. He doubted Jesus' willingness to do so. And I suggest to you that, that we're no different. Probably all of us in this room don't doubt Jesus' ability to move in our lives. But we do sometimes doubt his willingness to move in our lives. Maybe we say, Lord, if, if you want to, you can heal my marriage. God, if you, if you want to, you can save my child. If you want to, you can take away this addiction. We know he can, but we question if he wants to. This leper had the courage and the tenacity and the audacity to approach Jesus and come right into his presence. But like you and me, when he, when he got there, he wondered, do you really want to? Do you want to make me clean? Verse 41, it says, Then Jesus 
underline this, moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him. Underline touched him. This man has legit leprosy that can be transmitted through physical contact. Leprosy that dulls the nerves in your body till you're unable to feel any pain at all. It had probably been years since anyone had touched him. And Jesus touched him intentionally. Jesus brought a measure of emotional healing to this man who, who doubtless desperately needed it. And the first intentional touch he had felt in years came from his Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus extends his hand. He puts it on the man's head or probably his shoulders. And I imagine he just leaves it there for a minute as the crowd goes. <gasps> and if you put yourself there, you imagine the leper's on his knees. He's at the feet of Jesus. He is probably weeping just as Jesus touches him as the years and years of pain and isolation just begin pouring out of him. And in that moment, Jesus is communicating through touch before he said anything a message to this man, and he's saying, he's saying, you're mine, you're mine, you're mine. And he could have opted for the non-contact method and just said, be clean, be clean, without touching him. But he touched him, he touched him. And regardless of the sin you might be struggling with right now, don't make the mistake that countless thousands of lepers made that day of saying, I need to stay away from Jesus because I'm, I'm unclean. Jesus can handle your sin. He's not shocked or terrified by it. He's not embarrassed of it. He can handle your sin. He can handle your sin. So foolishness says, I'll get myself together, then I'll go to Jesus. Wisdom says, I'll never get myself together until I go to Jesus. Foolishness says, I'll get myself together, then I'll go to Jesus. But wisdom says, I'll never get myself together unless I go to Jesus, until I go to Jesus. So if you're faltering in your faith, if you're struggling in sin, if you're drowning in your own flesh, you need to know that Jesus can handle your sin. And this interaction between Jesus and the leper, between Jesus and leprosy, marks a massive shift in how spiritual things had worked since the Garden of Eden. So up until this point, the whole Old Testament had reinforced this idea that things that are holy become defiled. They become unclean when they come into contact with things that are unholy. So you can go and read through all the laws and there's all these precautions you have to take and things you have to avoid so that you don't become defiled. And Jesus has just turned that completely on his head and Jesus has said, in my kingdom... When the holy comes into contact with the unholy, the unholy becomes holy. Jesus just flipped it right on his head and he said, that's the kind of power and authority that I have. As everyone is gasping as he reaches down to touch the leper. This is an epic theological shift in one moment and it foreshadowed what Jesus was going to do on the cross. And I want to point something out to you about this miracle because you've prob- many of you have probably heard this preached on before and we sort of love the dramatic idea of Jesus' hand going onto the leper's head and sinking into like an inch of soft flesh or something really gross like that and <gasps> everyone says Jesus wasn't worried about it. But I want to point something out to you. You see... It was against the Old Testament laws to touch someone who had leprosy because it would cause you to become unclean under the law. The Bible tells us that Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. He perfectly fulfilled the law. And so that's why I would suggest to you that I believe when Jesus touched the leper, he touched a cleansed man. That split second before his hand touches him, he becomes a cleansed man. And that's even really a more moving picture because you realize in that moment, every nerve ending is restored. And as the hand of Jesus touches this man's head, he feels it like he hasn't felt anything in years. And he realizes from the touch of Jesus that he's been healed. He's been restored. He's been made physically whole. That's just a beautiful thought. What a moment. So not only are there those who say, don't, don't touch me till I get it all together, but there's also those who say, touch me, Lord. I want to I come into your presence and lift my hands and sing your praises, but, but don't change me, Jesus. I like me just the way I am. Listen, if the Lord touches you, you're going to be changed. If you don't want to be changed by Jesus, it's pointless to seek his touch. 
That's on your outline. If you don't want to be changed by Jesus, it's pointless to seek his touch. What are you asking for? Verse 41, it says, Then Jesus, moved with compassion, stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. I love that phrase, I am willing. I've read this so many times in my life, and every time I read it, I can't get over the emotional weight of it. This unclean man, is broken man, is telling Jesus, if you want to, you can heal me. Jesus touches him, he touches him, and he looks him in the eye, and he says, I want to. I want to. And that's a picture of salvation. That, that's a picture of what Jesus has done for every single one of us. And some of us might believe that Jesus once did this for us. Maybe we've drifted since then. Maybe we've backslidden and we've fallen away from God and, and we're wondering what his response is going to be if we go back again. We, we've fallen into that trap of thinking, let me get myself together, then I'll go to Jesus. Don't fall into that trap. If you go back to Jesus, he'll say the same thing he said the first time. I want to. I want to. Verse 42, it says, As soon as he had spoken, immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. Some amazing, amazing things happened in that moment. Obviously, the leprosy has been miraculously removed, and that's amazing. It's a physical change. But there's also the symbolism of what's happened here. Remember, at the, the beginning of the message, we talked about how leprosy is a picture of sin. It was considered a judgment from God. Jesus has just removed the judgment of sin from this man. He's just removed the judgment of sin. Symbolically, this man is no longer under judgment for his sins. And that, that's profound. And how could Jesus do that? Well, he could do it because Jesus would soon take the judgment that man was under and put it upon himself and be judged in that man's place. This was a credit against that upcoming deposit that would be the cross, so to speak. And we'll see that the result of forgiveness from Jesus is overwhelming, uncontainable joy on the part of the man who's been healed. I pray that you and I would exhibit some measure of the overwhelming joy that this man exhibits at being made clean by Jesus. That our best response wouldn't be neat. Neat. Terrific. But we'd have joy like this man has. Do you know that Jesus never refused anyone who came to him looking for help? He never refused anyone. He never said, you know, I don't have time for you. In every instance, he dealt with people graciously, mercifully, and compassionately. And maybe you're saying, well, you know, I've sought the Lord. I've, I've asked him for help. I've uh, asked him to do things in my life, and it never happened. Why would he help the leper and not me? In the book of James, it says this. It says, you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You know, the Greeks had a saying that when the gods wanted to punish a man, they would answer all his prayers. Many times our, our requests are just plain wrong and the Father loves us enough to say no, no, if no is the best answer. But he'll never turn you away. He'll always do what's best for you, which you will see sooner or later. I've stuck my foot in my mouth enough times with God to know I will see it sooner or later, even if it's not the answer I want. There were thousands of lepers in this region, thousands, but only one came and asked Jesus to heal him. And he went away clean. Only one. I promise God always has your best interests at heart. Always. Verse 41, it says, And he, Jesus, strictly warned him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go your way. Show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing those things which Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Multiple times in the Gospels, we see Jesus heal somebody and then tell them not to tell anybody about it. And then what, why is that? Jesus' goal at this point in his ministry is to preach the Gospel. That's his goal. Jesus is not trying to get a signs and wonders ministry off the ground. He's sure to preach the message of the Gospel. And when you begin to legitimately heal people, word of that spreads really, really fast. And people suddenly just want the miracles the best analogy I could think of was if you have a band that's kind of a, a one-hit wonder, 
there was this episode of The Simpsons that just cracked me up so much where, where Homer is going to see uh, BTO. He's going to see Buckman Turner Overdrive. And they do the band thing where they stand up and they're like, we're going to play some of our new material. And all Homer is shouting is, taking care of business, taking care of business. Play Taking Care of Business. And they're like, this guy is unbelievable. And that happens for every band that's a one-hit wonder when they say, like, we're going to do some new stuff from our jazz exploration album. Everyone just wants them to, like, play the hit. That's all they want them to do. And so if word got out, all Jesus would be experiencing is he would say, I'm here to tell you about the kingdom of God. And people would be yelling, do a miracle. Raise someone from the dead. Do it. Do a miracle. Do a miracle. This is what Jesus would be dealing with if he couldn't keep a lid on it. Even though he tried, he couldn't keep a lid on it. And people were flocking to him. And the truth is, most people weren't flocking to him to hear him preach. They they were coming for the miracles, for the signs and the wonders. And Jesus knows this. I believe that Jesus would have us remember that those things are not the most important things. Jesus didn't want anyone to get their miracle, but miss out on the greatest miracle which is the gospel. Write this down. We need the message of Jesus even more than we need a miracle from Jesus. We need the message of Jesus even more than we need a miracle. And I know we all need miracles at points in our lives. But listen, everybody Jesus healed died later on from something else. All of them. With 100% consistency. They all died later of something else. And the miracle is wonderful, but it's temporary. The message is eternal. And so when this leper went to see the priest, the priest would inspect him according to the Old Testament laws and would declare him to be clean. Yeah, you're clean. You don't have leprosy anymore. It would be legally documented and would make it official. It would be like you going to a doctor for a broken leg and he has an x-ray of the broken leg and now he has an x-ray of the whole leg and there's no medical explanation, but you've got the evidence to back up your claim. Jesus didn't want to deal with any of the hearsay that surrounds many of today's so-called healing ministries. So following the model of the scriptures, if anybody is ever dramatically supernaturally healed, I kind of believe that the advice from scriptures is, hey, go to a doctor, get it verified, get it documented. So you don't have to deal with any of this hearsay nonsense where you have ministries around the world that supposedly heal thousands and thousands of people but can't prove any of them. Jesus didn't do it that way. He said, listen, go to the priest, be inspected, be officially declared to be clean. You know, it's interesting that even though the laws about being inspected and being declared clean had been in the books for around 1,500 years, nobody in Israel had actually been healed of leprosy since those laws were put in the books. Miriam's experience happened before those laws were written, and Nanan was a Syrian general. He wasn't an Israelite. So nobody in Israel had ever been healed of leprosy. These laws had never, ever been needed to put into practice. So I would imagine when he comes in, he's like, I'm here to be declared clean of leprosy. The priest, you know, is like going to the top book on the top shelf, you know, and it's like, okay, let's see what we do here. I find that so cool because it means the only reason those laws were on the books was for this moment when Jesus healed this leper. And he set it up 1,500 years in advance so that the laws would be in place for this man to be declared officially clean. Really, really cool. And Jesus tells the healed man to present himself to the priests as a testimony to them. So the idea, as as I said, nobody had ever been healed since the laws were written. And he says, go show yourselves to the priests as a testimony to them. The idea is the priests were supposed to look at this guy, check his backstory, find witnesses who said, yeah, we all, we all know Steve. Steve had leprosy. He's always been a leper, you know? And they would say, wow, we've, we've done the research. We've inspected him. He, he, he's been healed of leprosy. And Jesus said, that's supposed to be a testimony to the priests. It's supposed to testify that the messianic age is here. The Messiah is here walking among us. And we know that some of them followed Jesus, but most of them didn't, despite that testimony. They would refuse to believe. Verse 45, it says, however... He, the the healed leper, went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the matter so that Jesus could no longer openly enter the city but was outside in deserted places and they came to him from every direction. In Luke's gospel, we're told that they came to Jesus to hear and to be healed by him of their infirmities. 
And then I love this. So the leper doesn't listen to Jesus, you know, which if you got healed of leprosy, you probably wouldn't either. You'd tell everybody. You'd, you'd be like, I won't tell anybody. And then you put it on Facebook as soon as Jesus walks away, right? You know, leprosy-free selfie. So <laughs> in the very next verse of Luke's gospel, we read this. It's really interesting. In Luke's account of this, it says right after this, so he himself, speaking of Jesus, often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. We saw some of this last week, that it was his custom to start his day even before the sun rose in prayer with his father. But here's Jesus coming from this amazing experience of healing a guy, and even then he just, he just withdraws. He pulls away from everything to go and pray, to go and be with his father. You see, this was Jesus' coping mechanism. His relationship with the Father through prayer was his coping mechanism. It's how he dealt with the stress of there always being more to do than there were hours in the day. It's how he dealt with the emotional exhaustion of seeing life after life healed. I mean, the experience with the leper was amazing, but it would also be emotionally exhausting. You know, it's like watching the most emotional, amazing thing you've ever seen happen in your life and then watching it happen again and again and again. He would be completely exhausted. Prayer is how he dealt with the endless questions and endless requests and how he stayed focused on the Father's agenda and mission instead of his own. Jesus' relationship with the Father was his catharsis. It was his counselor. It was his anchor. It was his foundation. Write, write this down. Prayer precedes power. Prayer precedes power. Last week we talked about the reasons why we don't see healings today with the same consistency that we saw during the ministry of Jesus. And we talked about how some of that is because Jesus was the literal kingdom of God on the earth and it was ultimately rejected by man. But the kingdom is going to come again one day. We talked about how our faith has a role in this. But here we see the role of prayer. I mean, let's just be honest. How many of you know anybody who comes close to the prayer life of Jesus? Anybody. You, you know anybody who's like up before the sun rises for an hour every morning praying with the Father? Do you know anybody whose response to any intense thing in life is just to withdraw, go walk, and pray consistently? I know some great people. I don't know anybody who does that. I don't do that. And so when we see the ministry of Jesus, we begin to understand, oh, okay, I get why there was power on Jesus. He had this incredible relationship with the Father. And there's no shortcut around that. It was a natural overflow of his relationship with the Father. There's a huge connection between prayer and power. We're going to shift gears and move to our, our second story, which is also in Mark. Just continuing into the next chapter in verse 1. It says of Jesus, And he again entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. So word quickly got around that Jesus is back in Capernaum. He's back in town. Of course, Capernaum's his base of operations at this time. And all signs point to the literal house that he's in being Peter's house. Most biblical scholars agree that Jesus was living with Peter's family in Capernaum at this time. Peter had moved from Bethsaida to Capernaum. In Luke's gospel, it tells us that Jesus' reputation had grown so much that when news got out he was back in town, it says Pharisees and teachers of the law traveled from every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem to see Jesus. Jerusalem was a day's journey if you went through Samaria, which they probably didn't, so it was more like a two-day journey to get to Capernaum from Jerusalem. But rabbis and scribes and priests are, are there because Jesus' buzz is reaching across the entire nation. And I love this little disclaimer that Luke's gospel includes. It says, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. I love that because the Greek word for power is the word dunamis from where we get our word dynamite. So Luke is literally saying, and there was spiritual dynamite present to heal them. It's just a cool verse. In verse 2, it says, Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them. So let's be real. Again, they're not here because they're that stoked about a Bible study. They're here for the wonder-working miracles of Jesus. But Jesus preached the word to them because the gospel was the most valuable thing he had to offer them. It's also interesting to note that, that faith is vital to receiving a miracle. Without faith, we're going to find out later, even Jesus Christ is limited in his ability to heal you. And where does faith come from? According to the Apostle Paul, 
Faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. So Jesus is going to do miracles. How does he set that up? How does he get people ready for ministry? How does he build faith in them? Well, he preaches to them. He preaches the word of God to them. And that's where faith comes from. Verse 3, it says, Then they came to him, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was lying. Write this down. There's no greater kindness you can offer a friend than to bring them to Jesus. There's no greater kindness. What I love about these friends is the entirety of their plan is bring him to Jesus. That's the beginning, the middle, and the end of their plan for their friend. They have nothing else to offer. What's the plan? We're going to get him to Jesus. What's going to happen after that? I don't know. That's as far as we got. That's the only plan we have. That's really the only plan Jesus calls us to have. For anybody that you decide, desire to see God reach, that you're praying for, just remember what, what they need is Jesus. They're not going to change their life without him. Nothing they do is going to matter until they have Jesus. So pray that God would empower you to bring them to himself. When it comes to faith, actions always speak louder than words. That's why it says, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic son, your sins are forgiven you. In Matthew's gospel, it's recorded that Jesus said to the paralytic, be of good cheer, your sins are forgiven you. One of the things that Jesus taught over and over and over again, I talk about all the time because I love it, was the idea of seeking God's kingdom first. The idea that if you seek the Father first, you can trust that God will take care of everything else. And the concept here is that our relationship with the Father is the key to everything. It's the center of everything. So following that logic, when something is wrong with our relationship with the Lord, it will show up in all kinds of areas of our life. But if we're honest, how often do we ask the Lord to deal with those symptoms instead of the root cause? Instead of addressing our relationship with the Father, we desperately ask Him to intervene in the issues that are really the symptoms of something wrong in our relationship with the Father a sin that has damaged our relationship with the Father, an addiction that has severed it, that is putting up a barrier. And the Father says, listen, you gotta deal with this. And how often do we say, you're not listening, God. You're not listening. I'm not talking to you about my sin. I'm not talking to you about some habit you want me to develop. I'm not talking to you about my devotional life. I'm talking to you about this problem. We talk to God like he's an idiot who's not listening to us. And God is saying, listen, that, that's a symptom. You're screaming and crying and yelling about a symptom. And I'm offering to deal with the cause of the sickness. That's how God works. How often does God say, you don't even know what you need? You don't even know what you need. I know what you need. Church historians suggest that this paralytic was actually in such a broken physical state because an STD had ravaged his body. He was experiencing the physical results of sexual sin in his life. And it had worked his way in his body to the point where, where he was paralyzed. His whole body is breaking down. And so Jesus knew that the thing that's really eating this man up on the inside is his desperate need for forgiveness. His desperate need for forgiveness. And so Jesus gives the man what he needs most first. He gives him absolution. He gives him forgiveness which was probably kind of a Debbie Downer for the four friends looking from the roof, right? They're probably thinking, thanks, Jesus. Forgiveness is totally why we just tore a hole in the roof and lowered our friend down. Thanks so much for that. Forgiveness, high five, all right. But I believe that the paralytic was overwhelmed because Jesus looked right through him and said, I I know what you really need. I know what you really need, and I'm here to give it to you. And I believe that if that's where the story had ended, the paralytic would have left overjoyed. He would have left overjoyed. In Romans 4, the Apostle Paul, quoting David, says, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. In other words, the happiest man is the man who knows he's forgiven. Many people today can't walk through life successfully or joyfully because they're haunted by sins they've committed previously. 
They are as paralyzed spiritually, emotionally, and relationally as this man was physically. And many of them are desperately trying to cure the symptoms because they don't know what to do about the cause. And here's what I'd say if that's you. The healing you need more than any other comes from hearing Jesus say to you, your sins are forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. And you can hear that from him today. Alexander McLaren said this. He said, the tap root of all misery is sin. And until it is dealt with, hacking at the branches is a sad waste of time. It's a sad waste of time. Uh, Let me just say this. This is the one major shortfall of psychology because psychology can deal with the symptom of sin, which we would call guilt. We call it guilt. All misery is connected to your sin or someone else's. Psychology can't deal with the root cause, which is sin. It can't. It can help you deal with the symptoms. It can medicate the symptoms, but it can't deal with the root issue, which is a need for forgiveness. I believe counseling, psychiatry, psychology, it has its place. It's how many people do you and I know who are in some sort of treatment, and even we know, Man, what you really need is forgiveness. You're haunted by something that you can't get rid of. And you're hoping that some kind of therapy can take it away. What you really need is the forgiveness of Jesus and the Holy Spirit moving in your life to empower you to believe that you're forgiven. That's what most of us need most. Now remember, there are religious leaders present. There's rabbis, scribes, and even leaders from Jerusalem. And I love this because Jesus is baiting them by saying right in front of them that he forgives this man's sins. He knows that they know only God can forgive sins. So, so in my head, the way I picture it is Jesus kind of says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And, and there were all the rabbis and priests are over there, and then Jesus kind of <laughs> looks over. If Jesus smirked, I think he would have smirked then just a little bit. And he just kind of looks at them like, well, well, aren't you, you going to say something? The authority of Jesus, just his presence, is so powerful that even when they've witnessed what they think is blasphemy, they don't even say it out loud at this point. They don't even say it out loud. Maybe they can sense in the room, you know, when everybody else is overjoyed and in awe, that's a bad time to be like a a Debbie Downer. So verse 6, it says, And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, So they're thinking internally, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Jesus plays this perfectly, and he's essentially going to answer their protest by saying, exactly. Exactly. The Pharisees and the scribes answer their own question with their question. Who can forgive sins but God alone? I really like the Pharisees and the scribes because they always help us out in the Gospels. Remember, when we don't understand the cultural context, when we don't understand that something profound has gone on, the Pharisees and the scribes are always there to get mad. And whenever you see them getting mad or outraged by something, that's a giant clue for us that Jesus has just pushed a button in terms of their theology, in terms of their cultural context, and it wakes us up to say, oh man, I need to pay attention to this because these guys are getting really, really worked up. And they're doing it right now. It says in verse eight, but immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit, and many times in scripture, we, we see examples of Jesus knowing what people are thinking. Jesus is the most spirit-filled man that ever walked the face of the earth. And the Bible tells us that one of the gifts of the Spirit is the discerning of spirits. So Jesus, filled with the Holy Spirit, he's not a psychic. He's just so in tune with the Holy Spirit, he can look at somebody and tell what's going on inside them on a spiritual level under the power of the Holy Spirit. And he knows exactly what's going on when, he's look, when he looks at these guys. So it says, but immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? Matthew's gospel, Jesus says, why do you think evil in your hearts? So Jesus calls their reasoning evil. He calls their reasoning evil. Why is that? Isn't isn't reason a good thing? It's, It's evil in this instance because Jesus is standing right in front of them. And instead of recognizing that he's right in front of them, they immediately assume the explanation must be he's not God, he's a fraud, he's a liar. 
They come to their conclusion before they even begin reasoning. So what they're doing is they're trying to reason towards a specific goal. And that's why Jesus says, what, what you're doing is evil. It's not reason at all. You're just trying to find a way to deny that I'm the Messiah. In verse 9, G- Jesus is just awesome. <laughs> verse 9, Jesus says, which is easier, to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk? I love this. And then Jesus says, I, I think if Jesus smirked again, he's doing it here. He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, turns to the paralytic and says, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took the bed, and went out in the presence of them all, so that all were amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. I love that. They're saying, who can forgive sins but God alone? He says, why, why are you thinking such evil things? Hold that thought so you'll know that I'm for real, get up, go home. Just like that. I'm pretty sure they were pretty quiet after that. He uses the miracle to prove his authority to forgive sins. And notice in verse two, it says that it was after seeing their faith that Jesus said to this man, your sins are forgiven. Seeing whose faith? Was it the faith of the paralytic that Jesus is referring to? It's the faith of the four friends. And many times Jesus would say to the person who was sick, according to your faith, be made whole. And the person was healed. Other times, seeing the faith of others, Jesus would allow the healing to be released. Still other times, for example, at the tomb of Lazarus, it's only the faith of Jesus. Mary and Martha were weeping in unbelief, and Lazarus is dead, so whose faith was it? And we need to remember this. Because in the area of faith, there's a lot of people who get really weird with it and say, you know, the reason that you're not healed is because you don't have enough faith. And there's a side to this where Jesus might say, well, what about your faith? Don't you have enough faith for them to be healed? And as much as I would love to make a simple system in which it's always my faith that has to do with me, there are examples in Scripture of the faith of others moving on behalf of those who have no faith. When you and I pray for healing for somebody who's not a believer, that's what we're doing. We're using our faith on behalf of them. When we are praying for God to open someone's eyes to see Jesus and recognize their need for him, that's our faith on their behalf. So just remember, your faith matters when it comes to other people as well. It doesn't just affect you. So how do we know sins are forgiven? How do we know the gospel is true? How do we know forgiveness is real? Well, just as the paralytic got up and walked out we see a changed life in somebody and that's how we know that it's for real the reality of a person's conversion is manifested in their walk the reality of a person's conversion is manifested in their walk if there's no walk it's just talk that's why we say even here when somebody gets saved and gives their life to jesus and if you were to say how do you know they're saved my answer would be we won't know till six months from now but see if there's a walk Let's see if there's a change before we decide if there's been a real healing, a real change here. You know, nobody had ever claimed the ability to forgive sins up to this point who wasn't disproved in some way. Moses didn't claim it. Elijah didn't claim it. Abraham didn't claim it. This was a staggering claim from a theological perspective. This is also why you can't claim that Jesus was just a good man or a prophet or a good teacher. He made the claim that he had the power to forgive sins. He made the claim explicitly. We don't have to read into the text. He made it explicitly. And this is some of the basis. There's some issues with this, I know, but I think it stands as a general point. This is why C.S. Lewis says, listen, Jesus is either lying, he's delusional and crazy, or he is who he says he is. But you can't call a man who says he has the ability to forgive sins just a good teacher because he's making a claim far bigger than claiming to be a good teacher or a prophet. And this is very interesting to me. It says that the crowd glorified God at what they're seeing. What they say is really ambiguous. They say, we never saw anything like this. To show you what I mean, let me read to you how Luke's gospel says it. Luke's gospel, it says, and they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear saying, we have seen strange things today. 
They acknowledge that God has moved in some way. They're filled with fear by the power they've seen displayed, but they don't yet glorify Jesus. They don't connect that Jesus is the Messiah, that Jesus is worthy of their worship as well. They keep it to God. And there are still a lot of people today who will claim to worship God, but Jesus is a completely different deal when you put a name to it. You know, the Greek word for strange things is the word paradoxo, where we obviously get our word paradox. And a paradox is just a truth that is made up of two seemingly conflicting ideas. Two seemingly conflicting ideas. A paradox would be if a woman says she's fine, she's not fine. It's a paradox, okay? That's the clearest example I can give you. So Jesus is described as a paradox by these people. And I think the reason they say that is because they're saying he walks like the Messiah. He talks like the Messiah. He's doing the things the Messiah is supposed to do. But he's not who we thought he would be. They thought he would be a lot more than that. They thought he would be that, but they were also expecting a political, nationalist, military leader who was going to restore the nation of Israel to the world stage of prominence, the center of the universe, overpowering the Roman Empire. And so they're saying in Jesus they see a paradox. They're saying these are strange things. He forgives sins. He heals the paralytic. He heals the leper. He casts out demons. He preaches with authority. But it's not adding up. It's sort of like they say, we will admit there's an equation that says one plus one, but we are not willing to concede that that equals two. And how true is that of so, so many people today? They recognize God in some way. They recognize the one plus one. But the real issue is they don't want to concede that the implications of one plus one is two. Remember last week we talked about how Jesus gave Peter and three of the other disciples a logic-defying miracle and a catch of fish, and and Peter fell down at the feet of Jesus and said, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. We talked about how Peter followed the implications of what Jesus had done all the way to their conclusion. He said, If this is true, if this is true, if this is true, it must mean this. It's the only way. He followed the equation all the way to its conclusion to the sum of its parts. But these people are unwilling to do that for the most part. They're willing to say, yeah, we see power, we see healing, we see teaching, we see truth. I'm not ready to concede what the implications are of all that. It's worth taking note of because it's a reminder that almost nobody is brought into the kingdom of God by our attempts to prove God. Let me ask you honestly, can can you top what Jesus just did? Can you top it? Can you teach with power and authority? Can you forgive sins and then back it up by healing a paralytic? Can you top that? You can't top that. And yet confronted with that, their response is, we've seen strange things today. We've seen strange things today. Remember in John's gospel, John told us that the real reason people don't come into the light is because they prefer the darkness. They prefer the darkness. It's so good to be reminded of sometimes that people don't stay in darkness because they think darkness is light. They stay in darkness because underneath everything they say, the truth is they prefer the comfort of the darkness. And that's why prayer is always more powerful than prose. Prayer is always more powerful than prose. That's why we're called to pray that the Lord would open the eyes of those who are in darkness. That's why we're called to give a reason for the hope that we have, what God has done for us in our lives, that they might realize the familiar comfort they rest in is the comfort of darkness. They need God to open their eyes because without open eyes, they can't see Jesus, even when he's standing right in front of them. I'm gonna close with, A few thoughts here. You know, after his death and resurrection, Jesus said to his followers, go into all the world, tell everybody about me. And yet most of the time, you and I can be found following the instructions of Jesus to the leper. Tell no one about this. You got it, Jesus. Way ahead of you. No risk here. Zip. 
I'm, I'm not an evangelist. It's, it's not my gift. That's why I regularly need to ask the Father to give me his heart for people who don't know Jesus. I promise I'm as scared as you are. But Jesus has asked me to be bold. Jesus has asked me to pray for the lost, to seek the lost, to join with them in that work. And I need to do that. I need to not dismiss that. He's asked me to tell the world. I want to point this out too. If you're going to be a part of what Jesus is doing, it's going to be inconvenient. I'm sure Peter's house was pretty nice. Roofs at that time were were made up of wooden beams. Then they would have sort of clay slabs that they would put and then they would spread mud in between the gaps to fill them in. Peter is like, sure, Jesus, I'll host a Bible study for you. What are we talking, like 12 people? We're going to do a DVD. House is packed. Nobody can move. People are standing outside. People go on his roof, break his roof, lower their friend down. Here's what I know. Here's what I know. After their friend left healed, the other four guys didn't stay and fix the roof. I know that. I know that. And here's the principle. If you're going to be used by God, it's probably not going to be convenient. Everyone I know who says things like, you know, I I really want to be used by God. I'm just waiting for that right fit. Ends up doing almost nothing for God. It's going to be inconvenient. Get over it. You're going to end up in conversations with people that you really can't stand who drive you crazy and push your buttons. You're going to end up in fellowship with people that you would never normally hang out with. You're going to end up doing things that you wouldn't choose to do. But here's the thing. Peter got to see the miraculous happen in his own house because he made it available to Jesus. The trade-off for the inconvenience was being a part of what God was doing on the earth. And I want you to know that God is offering you that every day of your life. He's saying, will you enter into partnership with me into what I'm doing? It's not going to be convenient, but you will get to see me move through you in your world, in your life, in your house, in your workplace, in your school. And then I just wanted to share lastly that if you're struggling with sin, and maybe you've just realized today that, that you've lost your spiritual sensitivity, man, re- repent. Change today. Ask Jesus for, your, for help and for healing. And, and here's what I know about spiritual sensitivity. It doesn't usually come back like that. When you take the right steps in your life, when you remove that sin, when you remove that habit, you're going to find sensitivity returning to your life and those things will become distasteful again as your sensitivity returns. But it doesn't return overnight. You have to remove those things from your life so that you can develop the sensitivity all over again. So as we pray and as we worship in this coming time, maybe take some time just to ask the Lord, God, is there anything in my life that I feel fine about but I really shouldn't feel fine about it because I've lost my sensitivity. I've lost my sensitivity. So let's pray. Would you, would you bow your head and close your eyes? And the first thing I always want to do is just give an opportunity if there's anybody in here today who doesn't know Jesus and is saying, you know, he, he's never been the Lord of my life. He's never been first priority in my life. He's never had ownership of my life. If you're in that place today and today is the first time that you want to say, I want to give my life to Jesus, all in. I'm ready to admit that I cannot fix this on my own. I have a spiritual leprosy that's isolated me and I I can't even feel the damage that's been done to me. But I know I'm damaged and I know I need healing and I know that only God can heal me. If that's you today and you want to begin that relationship with Jesus, I don't want to embarrass you. I just want to talk with you after the service. Would you just raise your hand to let me know that's you? Thank you. And then for the rest of us, if what you really need to hear today is simply Jesus saying, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. Go and take communion and let him remind you that you are forgiven. And then search your heart. See if there's any area where you need sensitivity to come back, where you've become dulled. Let me pray for us real quick. Father, thank you so much that you have the power and authority to forgive sin. God, thank you that 
the things we've done that haunt us, the things that have been done to us that haunt us can be healed through you. And God, I I know there may be scars that last a lifetime that won't go away till we're in your presence one day. I know that we can have closure, God. I know that we can find a measure of rest through you. And I pray for any of us who keep asking for forgiveness for the same thing over and over and over that happened a long time ago. God, would you by your spirit confirm that you have put that to rest? That has been cast into the sea of forgetfulness, God. You don't even remember our sin. You were judged in our place. God, may there be peace where there has been unrest in our hearts. We look to you, we hope in you, we trust you, we believe you, and we believe that you are God. Not just a good man, not just a good teacher. You're Jesus, you're the Messiah. You're the Savior of our souls. You're the Lord of our lives, God. And we love you and we honor you. It's in your precious name we pray.